Well, good morning, everyone. Please turn back with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, where through till the summer we've been thinking together about life and love in this awkward age between the ages that we, as Jesus Church, live in now. And we've come this morning to chapter 3, verse 19, through to chapter 4, verse 11, page 972 in the Church Bibles. And to catch you up on the story so far since uh, what we read last time in chapter 1, in chapter 2, Paul told us about a day when the cross itself was nearly undone over a church lunch, not because of people disbelieving the gospel, but because of key people in the early church living in a way that was out of step with the gospel, not recognizing each other. Jew and Gentile as full children of God. And then in chapter 3, Paul showed how full acceptance with God has always been on the basis of faith alone. Even in the age of the law, in the Old Testament, verse 7 of chapter 3, it was always those of faith who were true and full sons of Abraham. Which brings us to chapter 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you, all of you, plural, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, 
God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, that is, all of the fulfilled Jewish festivals. I'm afraid that I might have labored over you in vain. Well, amen. Let's pray together. Thou, my great Father, I, thy true Son. Lord God, we come to you this morning, all of us as children who are hungry and needy and asking our Father for food. And so we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would feed us, give us what we need to keep trusting you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is the secret to a perfect honeymoon? I guess like most young men, I look forward to my honeymoon with a lot of excitement, but actually what made it so special wasn't any of the things I had planned so meticulously. It wasn't the beautiful little island that we escaped to. It wasn't the rustic little cottage I'd spent so long searching for. It wasn't even the little hidden waterfall we found to swim in. Now, the thing that made our honeymoon so special was this. My father-in-law was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> I spent that time with my wife and not her dad. Now, don't get me wrong. Jen's dad is a pretty impressive guy to hang out with. He's a man for, who, for 22 years, flew F-18 fighter jets off US aircraft carriers. He's an impressive guy. So if any of you think you had it hard asking for permission to marry, I have no sympathy whatsoever. <laughs> he took his duties as a father very seriously. He brought his children up to know the Lord with real, loving discipline. That is something I will forever be thankful for. But he had a goal in bringing up his daughter, and that goal was to give her away well when the day of her wedding arrived, which meant that once we were married, in one sense, his job was done. It's not that he didn't still love his daughter. It's not that she wanted to forget everything he'd ever taught her. But his role as the one who made the decisions and governed her time and set the rules, that role had come to an end. And I reckon he had no more interest in sticking around for his daughter's honeymoon than either of us had. Well, coming of age is a wonderful, exciting thing, isn't it? Adulthood opens up whole new worlds of relationships and privilege and adventure. And today's passage is a coming-of-age story. It tells the story of Israel's childhood and the wonderful life that God had planned for her when she was ready. But Paul tells that story here for a very important reason. His 
readers are worried that now they've become Christians, they need to go back to Moses, that these Gentiles in Galatia need to convert to a Jewish religious way of life to stay on the right side of God. Look back with me, would you, at chapter 3, verse 3. They know that they've begun in the Christian life. They've begun well by a supernatural, gracious work of God's Spirit. It's all been grace. But will that be enough to carry them through to the finish line? Or do they need a better answer now for holy living? We know, don't we, as Edinburgh North Church, that we've begun by a supernatural gracious work of God. He's called each of us by His Spirit. He's called us together into a church. We've trusted that He will build His church through two ridiculously simple but supernatural things, preaching His grace week after week from the Bible and leaning on His grace month after month around His table. Nothing more to it. That's all there's ever been. But will that be enough to carry Edinburgh North Church through to the finish line? Or do we need some other tactics, some more visible, impressive answers to our weakness, our smallness, our ongoing sinfulness? Well, this morning, Paul wants to encourage the Galatians to keep going with the simple gospel, taking on more Jewish Outwardly religious ways of life won't make you any more God's children than you are already. Actually, to do that now, after Jesus himself has come into the world, that would be like taking your father-in-law along for the honeymoon. Because like him, Moses had a particular goal in bringing up his people, and that was to prepare them for the wedding day. So what a tragic thing it would be to miss out on Jesus because we were happy enough playing about with human religion, hanging out with Moses. Chapter 3 might still be fresh in some of our minds from our evening studies, but here's the bluffer's guide for all the rest of us. Paul spent the first half of chapter 3 arguing about what the law wasn't. It wasn't a second way to earn acceptance with God, as if he gave his gracious promise to Abraham and then a different kind of deal through Moses. No, all the way through, the way to God was faith in his promises concerning Jesus and his cross. It's always, only, ever been the cross. The cross for Abraham, the cross for Moses, and the cross for every one of them. Have confidence in Jesus' cross. And even a Gentile in Galatia is every bit a child of God, just as much as old father Abraham. But that leaves an important question, doesn't it? If the law was never about earning love from God, then verse 19, what was it for? And he doesn't just mean here the Ten Commandments, the law in that narrow sense of right and wrong. It's taken for granted in this letter that God's character doesn't change. What God calls good and what God loves, those things bind all people everywhere. But what was the point of Israel's whole history, the law 
as her whole religious way of life under Moses. And Paul's answer is that it was all to do with coming of age. He makes the point simply and clearly in verses 19 and 20, the law was a limited measure to protect God's people for a specific period of history. And then the rest of the passage will explain and apply that for these worried, insecure Christians in Galatia. It's a before and after story. Notice that all the way down to verse 24, it's about life until Jesus came. It's about Israel's childhood. And then verse 25 introduces the but now. But now that faith has come, that is Jesus, the object of Israel's faith, now that he's come, we're no longer children under a guardian. And so verse 25 to the end explains what life is like now that the church has come of age. Two halves then, two points, and two ages of the church, one BC and one AD. Why did God give the law? Well, verses 19 to 24, because this world is a dangerous place for children. Moses' job was to guard and protect Israel lovingly until the day came to deliver her safely into Jesus' arms. The Lord's job was to serve the gospel, to keep people under grace until in God's good timing, he delivered on what he'd promised Abraham. Now, why did they need all that protection, that hedging in while they waited for Christ? Well, because this world is a dangerous place. And the danger is what in verse 19, Paul calls transgression or sin, the human addiction to violating God's boundaries. That's a problem us humans cannot escape. And God knows how dangerous it will be for his children. So how easy would it have been for this special line of people, the people who the world's savior would come from, just to be swallowed up by that world, adopt its ways, absorb its cultures, lose sight of the wonderful, unique, gracious promise that God has given them. And so not only was sin out there a danger to them, but their own sin had the potential to be deadly, deadly enough that over the years, many of them did walk away from the gospel altogether. And God couldn't allow that to happen, could he? The world's salvation depended on it. Preserving one little line of sons until Christ came, And so verses 19 and 20 give us the main points in a very compact way. Three things, I think. It tells us about the law. It tells us why the law was given, because of sin. It tells us how long the law was given for. It was until something, until the offspring came. In other words, Israel's whole system of life and worship was only ever a temporary, short-term measure And it tells us the Lord's goal. It was to safeguard God's gracious promise until the promised one arrived. In fact, it always stood as a servant to that one original plan. There's a lot about verse 20 that is intriguing and mysterious, isn't there? But whatever that means, it shows that God's promise always took precedent over the law. The law came mediated. It came through angels, through Moses, 
And that jars with God's character. It was partial. It was incomplete because God wants closeness to his people. He wants oneness. That's what he promised. And that promise always came first. So there's his point in two verses. The law was a temporary childhood measure to serve God's promises in the face of human sin. And then the next two paragraphs just unpack all of that. We get a couple of similar pictures, each of which develops those points again. Each one shows how the law protected Israel from sin. Each one stresses that it's a temporary job. And each one shows how that served God's gospel promises. So verse 21, did the law compete with the gospel? Are the two somehow at odds? Was it another offer, another way to win righteousness? No. In fact, what it did was show the whole world why Israel's Messiah was so badly needed. And so Paul paints his first picture of how that worked, a picture of a prison. The law says, all of you in your fancy church clothes, Kieran, Nancy, Daniel, you're nicked. Put out your hands. Here are the cuffs. You're nicked. Now, don't misunderstand it. The law isn't itself the gloomy prison. The prison is something all human beings belong to long before Moses. The prison is sin itself. Do you notice how similar Paul's thinking is here to what Jesus was saying to us in John chapter 8? It's almost like the Bible's consistent. It's the same image, isn't it? We've belonged to sin for so long that we've actually got to quite like it. We need to be told that we're nicked. The prison feels safe. It feels like home. Sin is a part of us. The truth is we don't really mind all the ugliness anymore. And so the law came along and it turned up the lights, showed us that here we are actually behind bars in our orange jumpsuits, cuffed at the wrists. It's why in verse 22 he calls it scripture. The law is about revealing something. God revealed the ugliness in our hearts, how unlike him we are, how unlike the goodness and love and purity of our maker. The law says to mankind that everyone, without distinction, Jew, Gentile, good person, bad person, rich person, poor person, the whole of humanity is imprisoned by the same stinking, self-centered sin. And I suppose the scripture still tells us that today, doesn't it? Any human being who's truly faced with God's goodness and love does come away feeling condemned. But notice that crushing people isn't the aim. That's not the aim of God's law. The reason God shone that light into humanity's prison, verse 22, was to keep his people Israel longing and looking for Jesus' cross to show them how badly they needed what God had graciously promised. And so Israel's system of laws and worship and sacrifice kept them trusting that one day Jesus would fix all of their brokenness through his faithfulness. And then verses 23 and 24 develop the picture again, as well as holding us captive under sin, convicted and aware of their needs, the law also held them captive under kindness. 
like a parent's putting their children under curfew and out of trouble. The picture this time is of a guardian or a pedagogue in a Greek household that was a servant put in charge of the children to take them to school and enforce the rules and dish out the punishments. And I guess you can imagine how children felt about their guardians. Often they were satirized in the plays and poetry as a kind of ogre, someone you fear but respect and secretly grow kind of fond of. If you've got kids, think Nanny McPhee, not Mary Poppins. And if you're lucky enough to have never watched either, then never mind. Mary Poppins, she does things the Hollywood way. It's all about sweet songs and spoonfuls of sugar. And frankly, she's so perfect that every downtrodden mum wants to hang her head in despair. Nanny McPhee is brilliant, though, because she does all the things we parents wish we could do to our horrid kids, but we know we'd be locked up for in the real world. In the end, though, the children always come to see that she loves them, and for a while they needed her discipline. Well, that's the pedagogue or the guardian. It was a cramped childhood, a protective childhood, but it was for her good. The law kept Israel safe from the world outside them and the sin inside them. But children can't stay in the nursery forever, can they? And while it was good and right for a time, God's people came of age the day Israel's Messiah rose from the dead. So having explained the role of that law in Israel's history, Paul goes on in verse 25 to apply it to God's people today. Yes, this world is a dangerous place for children, but secondly, from Verse 25 through to 4, verse 11, the nursery is a tragic place for a grown-up son to live. There's something heartbreaking, isn't there, about an adult who still longs for all the security and institutions of childhood, who's never at home in the world of real relationships and decisions. And God wants so much more than that for his people. He doesn't want to be your school teacher or your jailer. He wants you to be like a son to him, a grown son who he knows and loves and can trust. That's what all of Israel's history was about, bringing them into a real, mature relationship. To be called a son was Israel's great privilege, wasn't it? Back in the Old Testament, Israel were God's firstborn son. Their kings were God's sons. And that son word, it has an overtone that perhaps you and I don't quite think of today. To have a son doesn't mean having a little boy. It means having an heir. A son implies posterity. It's not a baby. It's someone who will take on the family name. The word son in this story brings with it the idea of maturity. Someone who relates to God the way a grown son knows and loves his own father. Now, while they were children, that wasn't really what life was like for God's people. Yes, chapter 4, verse 1, they had the promise that one day they would inherit everything. But while they were children, in one sense, they were no better off than a slave or a servant. They had that promise, but only by faith. And so they lived under their guardians, waiting to come of age, waiting for the date set by the Father when they'd inherit And Jesus coming into the world, his payment of the law's curse, his defeat of death, his resurrection into a new age, 
that marked the fullness of time, the end of one era, the present evil age, the age of the flesh, and the opening of the age to come. It marked the day when God's children actually inherited everything they were promised, everything that belonged to Jesus himself. Listen to Martin Luther on that wonderful exchange between the true son and us, our inheritance. He says, thou Christ art my sin and my curse, or rather I am thy sin, thy curse, thy death, thy wrath of God, thy hell. And contrariwise, thou art my righteousness, my blessing, my life, my grace of God, my heaven. And the heart of all that privilege, that inheritance, is one gift more precious than anything else in creation. A tie to Jesus himself, a tie to his family, his perfect world. A tie which up until then, Israel only had on trust. And that tie in verse 6 is Jesus' own spirit. The spirit of a resurrected, new creation king. And so the day God's church grew up, they inherited the spirit of God's own son. And it means that as certainly as Jesus can call God his father, so certainly can we. Christ may be the prince and you the beggar, but God gives you every single privilege of a legitimate child. That's what adoption into Jesus' family means. The right to everything that Israel was ever promised. And all of that has two consequences so massive that it's hard to overstate how much they change the Christian life. And really, these are why Paul writes all of this theology to his troubled Galatian church. One is a consequence for our relationship with each other and the other for our own security before God. The first comes in verse 26. Now that the church has come of age, there is no such thing anymore as Jewishness. For in Christ, in his spirit, you're all those sons of God through faith. All of you have Israel's great privileges. All of you, if you trust Jesus, verse 29, are heirs and inheritors of everything Abraham was ever promised. Now, those of you who speak Ouija, it's one or two of us, we've got an advantage here because, like Greek, Glaswegian has one of those highly sophisticated languages with a plural form of the word you, isn't it? And you need that, really, to understand the force of this. That word you is plural all the way through. It's a use. So read verse 28 like a West Coaster. There is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free person, because yous, plural, are all one. And if yous are Christ's, then yous, plural, are Abraham's one kind of offspring. You're all Israelites now. So don't go priding yourself on your Jewishness today, because to separate yourself in a proud way like that now would be to miss your Jewish Messiah. These brothers and sisters all around you are bound to Jesus by the very same cord that holds you to him. 
Don't go priding yourself on how evangelical you are or how well taught you are or how engaged with the culture your church is. Don't waste your time all consumed with gender politics or class warfare or cultural snobbery. Don't do it. Because all of that is to be obsessed with utterly trivial identities, dividing lines that pale into insignificance now that you've put on Christ. He is your identity. And so that great curfew, all those rules that kept Israel apart from the other nations until he came, that curfew has given way to the Great Commission. There's implication number one. And the second comes down in verse six. Because Christ has come in history, we now relate to God in a whole different way. We relate as grown sons. And friend, that means that on your good days and on your bad days, you stand before God with all the confidence and all the trust of a son standing before a loving father with the spirit of God's own son, crying out from your heart, witnessing to God and to you that you belong in this family. Now, why was that so important for these Galatians to hear? Think about why a grown man might still long for childhood. Why were these Galatians pining for the nursery days under Israel's law? Surely it's because they knew what we know. They knew about their sinfulness and they longed for security. We want those religious top-ups to make us feel safe and real and accepted, fully accepted, to feel like the others in church who know their Bible so well and look so much more godly and they've got it all together. We want to feel like we fit in with them. Insecurity is at the root of religiosity. It's what made Christians in Galatia pretend and compete with one another and put on that damaging religious show. We long for that nursery of visible religious markers because we want to feel secure. But actually, that's a terrible, vicious cycle. Because now that Christ has come, there is no security in Israel's religion. Moses has done his job. And if you look for reassurance and all that now, his law can only condemn you. The more we look for reassurance in our own performance, in going to church and saying the right things and looking the part, the more crushed we're going to become and the more desperate we'll want to put on more of a show. And so the answer to that Galatian problem is simply to enjoy what it means to be God's true son. I'm a son because Christ was as entirely legitimate as it is possible to be, and I'm bound to him by his spirit. I'm a son because whether I'm male or female, I'm bound to the perfect son. I'm a son because I know that in my heart, I cry out to God as father, not just a master or an Allah, but a father. And so however unlikely it seems, when I look at my own life, verse 6 tells me I must belong to him. I'm a son, not just because I know God, verse 9, 
not because I did something, but because he knows me, because he set his fatherly heart on having me as a child, even though he knew exactly what that heart was like on the inside. And so I don't need to put on a performance, do I? I don't need to win him, impress him, compete with my brothers and sisters. That is not how a grown-up son relates to his dad. So are we enjoy, enjoying, rejoicing in all that it means to be his son? Or are we still thinking of ourselves as slaves? What tends to go on in our heads and in our hearts and our emotions when we fail? When others criticize us or we let them down or we worry about what they're thinking? Perhaps it feels like our own spiritual life goes up and down with other people's opinion of us. But can we know in that moment that it's our Father's love which matters and know that that has never changed? Do we find ourselves getting defensive and prickly? Do we avoid ever taking any risks in case we get it wrong? Is that how a son needs to behave around his dad? Think how you'd feel, how insulted you'd feel as a parent if your son thought of you like that. If you know anyone who's ever adopted a child, there is one thing, I think, that they long for, one thing they want for that child more than anything, and it's just to feel like they truly belong, to feel part of the family, to never question it again. So what an insult to God's fatherhood it would be, verse 9, to go back to weak, worthless, childish ways of pleasing him. They thought that religion made them look more grown up, didn't they? More mature. And so they started observing the Jewish calendar, the holy days, the festivals. Won't daddy be impressed? But actually, they looked just like my kids when they were little, and they put their mum's makeup on. They feel it's grown up, so grown up, but actually it looks like the opposite. All those ways of worship, they were tied to this world, the old age, literally. In the case of the Jewish calendar, they're tied to the sun and the moon and the stars. Just as up in verse 3, when he talked about Israel's childhood, he says they were enslaved to the same things, the basic principles of this world, baby things. Israel had little physical pictures to rely on, a picture book, while they waited for the promise, a tabernacle a sacrifice, a priest. They were real, but they belonged to this age, the old age. And to go back to that stuff now, to base a relationship with God on those pictures now, would be like tearing up your adoption papers. So do you see then what Paul is saying in verse 8? If you try to please God that way, it's as if you still don't know him at all. It's not Jewish anymore. It's pagan. All that Israel's religion can win for you now on its own is a marriage stuck with the father-in-law when there is so much joy and love and comfort and confidence to be found in Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Well, before we close our Bibles, friends, please Let's learn to enjoy what it means to be a true son. We do not need to put on a show anymore. Do you ever feel like that at church? Like from the moment you get through the door, 
you have to put on an act. Often we do, don't we? But it means we're not really thinking yet like sons. This is home. This is family. It's surely the one place in the world we can be ourselves. So look how beautiful Paul's answer is to all that insecurity, all that childish performance. His answer is God the Trinity to come to the Son, to cry in the Spirit, and be known by the Father. To come to Jesus, the Son, is to come of age. It's beautiful. It's liberating. He, Jesus, is who that whole glorious ancient history of Israel was all about. You could spend years reading Christian books and studying your Bible and praying to Israel's God, but if you've missed Jesus, You've missed it all. Following him, rejoicing in him is what it's all been about. Otherwise, you've got a marriage without the bridegroom. To cry in the spirit, that is to know for certain that you belong, that you have a father in heaven and a place in his home. And when you're conscious of your sin and discouraged by failure and you can hardly believe that it's true, you can still call out to a heavenly father. And that tells you it must be. It means that his own son is crying out from inside your heart. No matter what, no matter how hard you find it, even to come up with the right words to pray for him, it's real. And finally, to be known by the father, that is surely the most precious thing of all, isn't it? because it's the end of all pretending. You're his boy, his heir. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because when the fullness of time had come, God sent his only son to bring you into the family. And because he's your father, nothing is ever going to change his mind. So enjoy it. Enjoy what it means to be his son, says Paul. You don't need the nursery. You don't need a bit more religion as a great comfort to you when you're feeling guilty. You don't need to look good in front of others here at church to know that you belong. If you are known by the Father and loved in his Son, then you have nothing to prove ever again. Let's pray. Father God, what a wonderful privilege we have to address you with those words. And what a cost that word Father came at. And so we pray, dear Father, that knowing we are your sons would shape how we think and feel every minute of every day. How we think about you who knew us and loved us before the world began how we feel about ourselves, in whom the spirit of your own son cries out, telling us that we belong, and how we think and feel about each other here, these brothers and sisters with whom we share all that you've promised and before whom we never have to pretend. We ask it, Father, through the spirit of your only Son, our brother and our Lord. Amen.